Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is writer-director Rob Connolly, whose new film Edge of Winter stars Joel Kinnaman, Tom Holland, and Percy Hines-White in a story about a father whose attempt to bond with his two sons places all three of them in serious danger. It's now playing theatrically in the U.S., and Level Film opens it in Canada this Friday, August 19th. Rob picked Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Robert Zemeckis' 1988 fusion of live-action and animation, starring Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant, a hard-drinking private eye in 1947 Los Angeles, forced to work with a cartoon rabbit in order to solve a murder and unlock a conspiracy sprawling across the city. It's the rare pop culture event that's also a major technological watermark, winning Oscars for visual effects, film editing, and sound effects editing, and a special achievement award for the animator Richard Williams, but mostly it's a deliriously entertaining comedy, and if you haven't seen it, I feel bad for you. One small note about the audio. We recorded this on a suffocatingly hot day, and the new studio doesn't have air conditioning, so I cracked the windows open a little, and as a result, you can hear some noise bleeding into the recording at a couple of points. It shouldn't be too distracting, but I wanted to let you know. This is someone else's movie. I mean, initially, when when the question was posed is in terms of one of the most sort of influential films on me, I, this was one of the VHS uh, tapes that I had. We had three in the house, and it was <laughs> E.T., uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And any sick day, we would watch one of those three. And this always sort of represented that first time that I was able to sort of recognize that movies could be anything, that you could set up whatever world you wanted, that it could be as crazy and zany and amazing as you were able to, to imagine it. And for me, that's one of the most exciting things about this entire industry. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So... Did you get to see it in the theater first, or was that... No, it was always... I just remember it from our, you know... I had an older sister who basically got to pick what movies we, we got and we got to see for a long time, and I, I'm probably a little rusty on the details of how this all went, but I have a feeling that she chose this movie first, and I just loved it. So it's literally always been part yeah, of it. Yeah, it has, I mean, as, as long as I can remember. I mean, I was... I think six years old when this came out, so it was—it's sort of always around. Wow! Yeah, I was not quite twenty. Yeah. I guess when it came out, I feel very old. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the first movie I remember seeing in the theater was I think Muppets Take Manhattan, maybe. Okay. And I just remember very little of it, but apparently the story is that I was apparently just screaming for Kermit the whole time when he gets lost, and that was like I was very concerned about finding Kermit. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole world of like child empathy that nobody really talks totally. about until you're old enough to differentiate. Yeah, I'm not even sure if I made it through the end of the screening without being taken out. I'm sure that, that I was promptly removed from the theater at some point. I was in a screening of Toy Story 3 and in the Inferno sequence, the scene where the toys, pretty sure they're all going to die. Right. You started screaming. The kid behind yeah. me, I, I was feeling for them, but the like, five-year-old behind me was just, no, no, yeah. no, no, just like lost it. That scene is crazy. That's one of the most affecting scenes that I've seen in a movie in a long time where you're just sitting there. I remember walking out of that movie thinking, I can't believe that I was that uh, wrapped up in the fate of these animated characters. Yeah. It's crazy. But they've been like, they've been doing that for 
ridiculous Absolutely. with Pixar. They've been making us feel for things. Like, totally. I mean, the When She Loved Me scene in the second yeah. one, this is like they had to find a way to top that. Well, how do we, how do we try, how do we conquer our previous record of right. crushing children? It's exactly. like, well, let's, let's put them in mortal danger. Peril. Let's, let's yeah. burn the babies. It's true. Uh, but with with Roger Rabbit, though, you have this other thing where live action and animation are being married in a way that, I mean, for me, I always, I've always been able, I never had that moment when I was a kid of, of not being un, able to understand that animation isn't real. It's right. always read to me as something that's completely different. But the dimensionality in Roger Rabbit was, you know, that was the big deal. Right. That was the, the triumph of of what it's 70 years of animation technology finally getting to the point where you could do that and blend them with actors so seamlessly i mean it's one of those examples of sort of an experiment that just totally worked and and the story was couldn't have been more perfect for that experiment at the time how did it play for you i mean i i obviously was super young so it was more of like a full-on just enjoyment but the older i got the more i was just sort of like it went from being something of just silly cartoons interacting with humans to like Oh, there's a real story in this that you know. Of course, you don't get when you're six years old, but yeah. like, all about the like overdevelopment and things like that. Like, it's it was such a an amazingly layered film that seems like this just sort of kooky, zany, uh, almost kids movie at first, but it's not at all. I also remember being terrified of Christopher Lloyd's character. Yeah, as a child. I, that was my next question. The how, dip. how real is the dip? Oh, it was when you were horrifying. Kid. Like, I mean, I guess as much as you've always sort of been able to separate those two like somehow in here like I just remember being terrified that that was I I don't know if I thought it was a real thing or not but it was definitely real to me uh not that I was ever maybe convinced that I would come across a dip but it it was like it it seemed like something to be afraid of for sure I remember how it played in the theater the first time when I saw it with you know like on a Friday night first night first show kind of thing and I would guess 700 people were surprised by yeah. how well that plays. It and totally does. They, it's that Robert Klein joke about um, animated car- cockroaches in, in a raid commercial in the 70s where he's like, they're all having a party and then suddenly they're murdered. And <laughs> don't make me love them and then kill them. It's, it's true. But that shoe, that test sequence is nightmarish. It like, is. It's really, it's well drawn. It's the first, that, I think that was the first moment in the movie where I started to think about the ramifications of this world like whatever alchemy is going on to make tunes and humans live together totally. and, and in the book there's a much stranger rationale they right. talk in word balloons and they're not they're still two-dimensional and they're not really coexisting in the right. world the way that the animated characters are in Roger Rabbit in the movie but that little shoe just he didn't do anything wrong totally. <laughs> and he and dies for it it's, you see that happen and then you watch these characters and people being lowered down towards this dip and it's just there's this insane sense of dread and fear watching them squirm away from it I don't know it's very visceral to me yeah and then they up the ante by making Lloyd even more disturbing as it goes on absolutely and his eyes are bulging out and all that it's terrifying as a child yeah and that spoke to me of this amazing loyalty that Lloyd has to Zemeckis who's clearly willing to do anything for him after Back to the Future because this was not an easy part to play no a lot of makeup a lot of work yeah uh, physical exertion, just the stuff he does with his jaw, and yeah. his weird contortions. But it speaks to something really primal and nightmarish that the rest of the movie is sort of desperate to ignore. Like even the even the scenes of Toontown's Skid Row are funny. Right, they're 
a, the, the whole movie, the conceit of the movie is that it plays on our memories of 40s and 30s right. movies as well as of 40s and 30s, 30s and 40s America. There's veiled racism. There's all kinds of right. weird stuff bubbling underneath. Totally. And then when it really lets go and you see just how ugly they're willing to make it, it's pretty shocking. It is. It absolutely is. I mean, it's you just, especially at that time, you weren't expecting anything that uh, real, for lack of a better word, yeah. in anything with, you know, crazy cartoon rabbits. You know, it's yeah. just like you, there's a certain language that was then being sort of rewritten. And it was, it's amazing how effective that is. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised in retrospect because. Zemeckis did the same thing with Back to the Future, right. where he sort of exposed the fifties as totally. nonconformism hell, right. and and the Reagan Revolution by de- by extension is yes. kind of a sick joke. Comment. It's breaking down the glossiness of you know these these sort of uh, scenes that appear perfect from the outside, and, yeah, and, and destroying of, nostalgia. Absolutely. Uh, except that, except that in Roger Rabbit, the nostalgia is so crucial to why you love it because yep. you get to see characters who at the time had really been maybe inert hibernating I don't know right. how you describe them but other than a couple of appearances here and there the Disney characters really hadn't been doing very much right. or Disney hadn't been doing much with the characters yeah, I'm even treating them like that <laughs> Bugs had been in semi-retirement right. since the 60s and yes. that scandal had kept it out of the press but he had to retract it. but the uh, and Warner Brothers was sort of just not really doing very much with their animated properties either they were sort of letting it slide to television and running stuff I think right around that same time wasn't that when they were editing them for violence too yeah he is the yeah yeah and then here they are acting like personalities and and appearing you know those weird negotiated things where right. Mickey and Bugs had to appear in the same scene and Daffy and Donald I think have to be in the same frame at all right. times but their their spirits are brought back for the first time and and the long time and Zemeckis lets you remember what you love about them absolutely but then with the added element of that there are really real stakes yeah. involved like you're watching something that hasn't happened before you know you watch uh, you know the coyote run off the edge of a cliff and fall and then it shows up again later and then you're watching suddenly these animated you know creatures are you know they can disappear they can die they can be offed by you know whatever it's it's amazing how shocking that is when you're used to a certain thing that you're used to certain rules and suddenly they say okay no now they play in our world versus their own they're not just in the cartoon world anymore yeah and that gives us the hook of the original characters who right. could die at any minute because totally. we have no investment in roger beyond right. this and roger and jessica and baby herman right. all these new characters who are just different enough right yeah like right, but I'm, familiar I'm, at the same time yeah right? i'm looking at the roger uh, character now and there are elements that He's got Mickey's smile, and he's got Bugs' ears, totally. and there are pieces that you recognize from both animation styles. Absolutely. And then it just keeps going. Right. Yeah, um, and then the added element of, you know, bringing all of the characters that you are familiar with at the same time in Toontown. Yeah. And it and not having it feel like that sitcom thing where they introduce a character in the totally. third season, and it's like, this is Jerry, you remember him, he's right. been in every episode of... No, he hasn't, we all know it. Right, exactly. It's the world that they establish, and they follow the rules pretty flawlessly. Mm-hmm. So, oh, this is a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, at what point did you finally see Chinatown? Like, when did you make that connection? I, I saw that... I think it probably wasn't until my first year in film school, in okay. grad school. I mean, it was a long time later. It's I had a very specific set of, like, I grew up in a, a really small town in the mountains of North Carolina, and, like, our video store had a 
like they catered to a certain audience and it's you know I didn't get to see a ton of classics that I you know now looking back on them like I wonder how this experience would have been if I had seen that when I was you know much younger sure but there's also something really fun about being able to discover all those things later in life where you you know it's there's a whole world out there where you you then are now connecting back all of the influences on the other films that you know and love from things that were you know maybe made 30 years before that so yeah. it's uh, it's pretty great, but yeah, I don't think I saw Chinatown until until I was at USC. And did it hit you? Absolutely. Or did you already know? No, no, I absolutely. Like I, I mean, I'd been aware of the the connections, but it was just like watching it. It all makes sense and just makes it seem that much more brilliant once you once you have that. But I definitely had not seen it when I saw Roger Rabbit as a six year old. Yeah, it's that a, much I know. It's remarkable just how much in this sort of. I, I I hesitate to call it the the secondary blockbuster because just because it was never sequelized, they never figured out how to maintain it other right. than Disney rides, I guess, or something. But the idea that the film exists in its own bubble, it hasn't been Jurassic World, did, right. and it hasn't been rebooted, and there's like there's largely no point. Right. There just doesn't seem to be a need to do this again. It is as much of that's never stopped anybody before. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's sadly true. Yeah. I'm just I have to believe Zemeckis just doesn't have any interest in it and he keeps blocking it. I'm that's, sure that's my I'm sure people have pitched. I mean I know people who have toyed with the idea of what would happen in a sequel and I mean to some degree I think that's it's an amazing thing to protect. It it exists pretty perfectly in that space, in that time when when this was revolutionary and when that worked to such a degree with the story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I, I've gotten to talk to Zemeckis a few times over the years, and I did ask him about it once. I think it would have been in 92. And he said, eh, he was waiting, he said he was waiting for a, a leap in technology to make it interesting right. for him, because he'd played with the the technocrane, or whatever they call it, whatever they called it at the time, the motion control rig, right. and then he used that in Back to the Future 2 and 3, and he played with some other stuff in Death Becomes Her, and right. CG was starting to creep in, and he just, he didn't seem, like, he didn't seem to be shining me on. I think he was just legitimately not interested in following it up. Well, and he's obviously somebody who's incredibly interested in sort of figuring out what the next sort of process is, and, yeah. and I mean, that's been a, a constant in a lot of his work, so I, I mean, I get it, like, this was such a revolutionary thing at the time if you're going to do it again how are you going to add to the conversation like it's not just saying like let's do Roger Rabbit again it's yeah. how do we make it something as special as it was the, the first time around yeah and who do you get like I mean obviously Bob Hoskins is gone now right. but who else would be who else would be willing to do that to themselves although I suppose it's happening more and more often now like yeah. you know you've got Avatar where people are acting opposite motion right. capture and You've got movie after movie after movie where CG characters are becoming a thing now. So right. would it be an actor willing to talk to nothing and then rehearsing with Charles Fleischer in a bunny suit? Or would it be somebody performing opposite Andy Serkis? You know, like, uh, I'd love to see Ryan Gosling in a Roger Rabbit movie because he'd be a perfect human for that world. Yeah, or he could just play Roger. <laughs> he could, actually. <laughs> but um, at the same time, like, where do you... Yeah, it's not even a question of where you go. It's where do you look for an actor right. who can do the things that Hoskins did. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a totally fair question. It's, I, but that also happens a lot with, with remakes. I mean, you're, you're looking at, at a time when a lot of things are being sort of brought back. And, I mean, even just look at what happened, you know, with Ghostbusters, with the initial reaction before anybody even saw it. People are very protective of things that they, they know and they imagine to be preserved a certain way. And anything that sort of upsets that is, is scary. I mean, yeah. 
Um, but that just goes to sort of show the the respect and the admiration that people have for for projects like this, and that's it's special. I mean, I love the idea of of adding to that conversation. I don't like anytime it goes back and tries to redo something that already was done pretty flawlessly the first time, or at least was something special. I think that that's a, you know you're asking for comparisons at that point. But if it becomes a different sort of endeavor, then you have to look at it separately. It's like the the conversation of you know, I read that book and this movie is completely different. Like right. they're different they're a different thing altogether. And I think that with a lot of like reboots it's gotta be sort of viewed through that same lens. Yeah, I I mean and I'm not arguing for one at right. all. Right. If anyone is listening, don't. <laughs> uh, it's not it's not necessary. Right. It's perfect the way it is. I don't need to know what happens next. No, but it's a very like it's it's a very current like thought experiment yeah. I guess because it's you know so many things are being brought back and, oh, yeah. and, and it's right in that window too totally. like 1988 Absolutely. is exactly the right sweet yeah. spot um, I just I just fear that as with almost every one of these packages yeah. it will be put together because you can not because you should right, right? And then you're in, you end up. I mean, it's it's what uh, it's what Raymond Carver said about his books, right? Like the, the or James M. Cain. Nobody Hollywood didn't ruin my books. They're right there on the shelf. Yeah. But it's true, and you have to. I mean, I I've come across several properties of people or things that you know somebody's life story or whatever, and and you talk to them and about potentially adapting it or something like that, and they're like, no, I, this happened to me in this specific way. I don't care what you do with it. It's a completely different thing. Like. If it's, it, there's a way to separate that in your brain. I think different art forms and different uh, sort of entities can exist simultaneously and be completely separate while being connected at the same time. Yeah, and especially something like this, where you know there's no reality in the first place. Right. It's all fair game. Totally. But they do such a beautiful job of creating a complete world. Right. Where you can say you know like some gorilla got tough with me and it plays on two levels. And Absolutely. Just undermine all the assumptions that we had going in and then suddenly just start having fun with it. That's the thing that I'm so happy about is that it is pleasurable, even though there is all the genuine horror and existential terror that the characters go through. Even the idea that Eddie had a brother who died isn't that bad because that's a trope we're used to from these movies. That's how it goes. And that's what I remember from my childhood about I mean, yes, I remember the dip and all of that, but like just the joy of this movie and watching, you know... I think of the the craziness of it, not the the terror that yeah. you know. You've got a, a rabbit being hunted through the entire thing, which is again something that we're used to in a different context. Yeah. But suddenly there's real stakes, and I still think of it as being this like fun, funny movie. Yeah, it's joyful in a really weird way. It is even even when bad things are happening, they're done with so much charm that you totally. can't feel bad about it. And then there's the whole. Um, Extend well. Extension isn't really the case, right? Because it's self-contained. I was going to say the extended universe of Warner, of Warner and Disney sort of creeping in. Right. But those things. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the same happened for you. As I got older, and more to the point, as Disney started releasing those earlier things yeah. that we'd never seen before, you can really appreciate what lifts they've taken in individual design points and drawings and choices. That's just. It's. Yeah. It's like a treasure map that takes you through the history of animation. Totally. It's, I mean, you can definitely they they treat it with such respect too. I mean, it's it's handled in such a way that it's it's irreverent as it should be. But they also, you know, once once those other characters are brought in, it's sort of celebrating the history of animation in a way. Yeah. And while advancing it. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're you're seeing the uh, characters like Betty Boop are being rendered in a, in a manner and at a level which they've totally. never been rendered before. Yeah. And uh, and hopefully kids are discovering them as a result because right. certainly like in 1988 there was just no traffic in that stuff. People weren't talking about right. anything beyond the characters they already knew. Yeah, it's it's great, and to be able to create new iconic characters that fit into that world and are still you know there's never really going to be another Jessica Rabbit in that way like everyone remembers that character and to add in to be able to add in characters like that into this universe at that point it's it's pretty amazing yeah so did you follow the extended universe did you see the other shorts I've seen the shorts yeah and yeah. like the one that on the VHS the one that played before oh because you was, had yeah yeah it's right. the one oh, tummy was, trouble yeah it's it? exactly yeah, yeah. um and we never skip that one. Like we'd always watch it all the way through. I love when they like. I love how Pixar plays shorts before things. I shorts are such an amazing art form to me, and I, I wish they were more widely distributed. Yeah, um, they really are just the province of film festivals now. I mean, we um, I'm doing a Harborfront screening series nice. uh, all summer, and they've got the NFB to supply. I think five of our nine screenings have a short. Oh, that's great. There's one tonight that I haven't even seen yet. So. That'll be fun. It's but. something that a lot of people aren't even exposed to in any real way. And then it, there's just such power to be had from from shorts that, you know, I just feel like it's obviously tough to market. You know, you can't draw people to come and watch, you know, 90 minutes worth of shorts. It's a tricky thing outside of film festivals and, and true film fans. But the idea of, you know, a... a uh, a short before a feature is like such a such a great fun sort of callback in a way, and plus it, it can really add and like set up. It's like a warm up act in a lot of ways, but it's if you find the right yeah exactly. Anyways, I mean it's yeah. it's got to be curated properly, but um, yeah, I just I love what people are able to do. I no matter how many times you think you've seen enough movies, be them shorts or features, it's amazing how people are constantly pushing the boundaries with that. Yeah. So. I'm actually really looking forward to the TIFF lineup that they just announced right. last week about, I think it's 43 Canadian shorts, and then there'll be the additional programs right. that we haven't heard about yet. But the uh, the flood of stuff, every year there's there's genuine discovery. Yeah. This year, uh, Max McCabe-Locos has one in there called um, uh, Ape Sodom that he was mm. telling me about a year ago when we did the podcast, and I finally get to see it, That's which is great. great, and then whatever else there is to discover. That's always one of my favorite things about film festivals, going and getting to actually sit down and watch what people are doing. Now. I mean, it's it it's constantly evolving in the same way that that um, you know features are, but people can take a lot bigger swings because there's you know less money involved and less time putting it together. But I mean, most of the time there's less money involved. Yeah. But that's that's the fun of it is really getting to sort of. Uh, to push the envelope as much as possible. Yeah, I wonder if the web will. I mean, if you know, if if, if iTunes started mandating, if they forced a sh- uh, short before a feature, how people would respond to that? People generally don't like anything that gets in the way of the thing yeah. they're trying to click on. But yeah, I, I kind of have a feeling that it might get treated like an ad in a lot of ways. I mean, people want to get to why they're there, but yeah. that's it's maybe just a way of reshaping it. It's interesting that Pixar has been able to pull that off with every you know every one of their features you or I look forward to the shorts as much as I do the the feature yeah me too the one in front of um, uh, oh Finding Dory the, the oh yeah the, the little some of the most tiny m- thing no dialogue really simple yeah 
some of the most amazing animation. Like you just sit there and kind of marvel at the spectacle of this, like the detail and the feathers of this bird and like just every little bit, the grains of sand, everything about it is incredible. The advancements that they're making now. Yeah. And some of that started with Roger Rabbit with the, with the, the slight augmentation of CG, right. the you know computer systems that grew into other projects. Right. It's, uh, I, yeah, like I was saying, I just don't think it, it's somehow, it's slipped aside in a lot of ways mm. and it's because it's not an extended franchise universe thing that won't stop, but it hasn't quite have the luster that it should. Right. It's one of those movies where when they released, I think it was the 25th anniversary Blu-ray there was a problem with something that had to be like the disc had to be recalled because they didn't pay that much attention to it or maybe it was the uh, maybe it was the 20 maybe it was the 20th anniversary DVD but I definitely remember an exchange program and people were like eh, guess so that's interesting yeah it's it's odd it, um, Zemeckis was so good at capturing that that lightning in a bottle right. thing and Charlie Fleischer's voice was everywhere for about yep. a year and a half and then I don't know. Maybe it's because it's hand drawn. Maybe some it feels like a relic. But I think that's one of the reasons I treasure it. It's, absolutely. It's the end of the era, but yeah. it's not the death rattle. Right. Like it, it's not a thing like um, oh Oliver and Company, the, the the Disney animated film, right around the same time, which was oh well, that's just killed hand drawn. Right. Until Little Mermaid reactivated it. Yeah. That weird lull. It's just it's a it's it's alive. It doesn't feel like a museum piece. It really doesn't, and I mean, I think that it's all this stuff's cyclical to some degree, and hopefully it'll it'll come back around. I mean, even like what they're doing with you know stop motion stuff now. I saw Kubo and the Two Strings the other day, and it's the, oh, yeah. the animation, and that's incredible. Oh, Just okay. watching what people can do, and and I think people are incredibly excited about that style of animation now. I think it's just you know, if the hand drawn stuff. If you get too far away from it, I think people will start sort of playing with it again and figuring out what what can come back around. But yeah, oh, I, I haven't I seen Google yet, so I'm really looking forward to it. Right. I, I really like what Like has been doing. Yeah. just that weird idiosyncratic totally. stop motion. And this one's great with like some really great uh, Japanese folklore and, and things like that that are that really make it unique and special. But the, the animation's mind blowing. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. So yeah, so what? Subsequent to Roger Rabbit, I mean, where did your tastes go? Where did your um, to in that same world of you know stranger, darker? I, I love. I mean, everything from character studies to you know small. Uh, I, I'm just thinking of things that I've seen lately. Like I just saw um, Wild Tales. Did you see this? Yeah, yes. I loved that movie so much. Dark comedies are, are my sweet spot. Like that to me is exactly if I could go in watch something that has a message, has something to say, something that they're exploring, if it's satirical in some way, and I also find it hilarious, like, there's nothing better than that. If it's well-acted and, and dramatic, something that has kind of all of the pieces of life, you know? Life isn't necessarily just drama or just comedy or any of the stuff. It's the best films for me are, are combinations of that. Things like Force Majeure, I saw right. uh, maybe a year ago, and just cannot get that out of my mind where it's such a strong hilarious movie and portrayal of what could be a very real situation between yeah. a couple and then watching how they handle it you can absolutely relate to you know this this uh these circumstances that they find them in and i just to me that's that's where movies are best yeah, yeah. it's a it's a new i think it's a new language too and it's growing out of cringe comedy and stuff yeah. where people have television has sort of trained us to 
wait for the laugh right. to see what's going to happen, and that means you can stretch out a black comedy longer and longer. And it's longer. true. I just saw the lobster the other day too. Like things like that are, are really there's they get to explore in a different way. I mean, it's it's not just playing for laughs. It's playing for laughs around an idea. Right. And uh, to me, if that's if there's not that at the center of it, then then it's a missed opportunity. I think. Yeah. So this brings us to the closer on, on the episode which right. is always the same which is you know what of Roger Rabbit have you sort of stolen for your own work or, or incorporated into your own DNA was uh, was Tom Holland hand, hand drawn uh, yeah. for most of Edgelet. yeah we, we actually couldn't get him he wasn't available so we just drew him in no he um, I for this I mean this is in a lot of ways a departure from where I, I normally go I mean I, I my short film was much more in the sort of dry comedy world and, and this was something where I really wanted to focus on this character and look at you know what happens when um, I'm talking about Joel Kinnaman's character, the father Elliot in the movie. He, what happens with somebody who makes a series of sort of short-sighted decisions based on you know where where he starts, which is at this place of of kind of desperation, but each of these short-sighted decisions leads you to a place where you almost don't realize how you've gotten from A to B. You look back and say, okay, things started in a very normal place, and then suddenly, you know, one thing leads to another leads to another, and all of these seem somewhat rational, like somewhat rational decisions that have led to extreme, you know, sort of crazy circumstances. Um, I mean, there was actually a version of this that we shot that had a lot more sort of comedic moments in it that we had to pull out because it made his character almost not it was tougher to buy the transition to where he ended up for me I mean like I was saying a minute ago I think it's important to sort of have moments of that like moments of levity to to sort of um, bring it into the real world and not make things so heavy but like in this particular case the more comedy we had the more problems we had with with sort of taking that journey with this guy so it was an interesting sort of experiment for me I can see that and Kinnaman is I mean he's a pretty like he's a funny performer. He he's got an electricity in, in a lot of his roles that you can see filmmakers either lean into or sort of tamp down. Right. Like Robocop didn't seem to know what to do with it, and, and Suicide Squad doesn't want anything to do with it. Right. But yeah, the the first fifteen minutes or so where he's he's being a dad. Yeah. And that means like flashes of emotion and spontaneity and reacting to, to your kids who you haven't right. seen in a while. There's like there's a lot of life in him. He's being a dad in the way that he thinks you're supposed to right. be a dad. And like even the way that this movie progresses, the things that he's doing to connect to these kids are almost, I hesitate to say this, but like sort of cliched versions of what it is to be a dad. Like, I'm going to teach you to shoot a gun. I'm going to make a man out of you by yeah. doing these things. But that's what he's drawing from. Like that's He's well, not somebody who's equipped to be an emotional father. It's somebody who goes okay i know what men are supposed to be based on you know whatever it is movies i've seen or whatever yeah. uh perceptions i have of this right. and the idea that if he if he does it for his kids and the kids won't know that he's exactly performing exactly that it's it'll seem natural and it, it never does that's one of the things that he's able to pull off is that the more he tries the more you become aware that like maybe he doesn't actually know that much about the wilderness maybe he doesn't know you know he's somebody that may go hunting once every couple of years or something. This isn't something that he's, you know, he's not an outdoorsman through and through. He's definitely not a father through and through. It's, 
it's a stretch for him. But I'm, as an audience member, I'm rooting for him to pull it off because totally. he's sympathetic and I want him to be and successful. That's his magic trick. That's what Joel can do that not many people can do is to take something that could be incredibly hard to watch where you're watching somebody put their own children in, in jeopardy but he's able to also be sympathetic magically at the same time and that's that's you know the best thing about him as an actor is being so sort of sort of multi-layered and multifaceted in a way that uh, I, I find him incredibly fascinating as an actor yeah and with Holland you have the same kind of watchfulness that he had in the impossible right. where so much of this stuff boils down to his reactions and right. how we process his reactions in the moment absolutely and I mean for him and for Percy Hines White who plays Caleb the the youngest brother I mean those kids are really put through their ringer in this movie in a lot of ways I mean everybody was but that was that was what we were signing up for you know right. it was it was gonna be extreme it was gonna be cold they were gonna have to go into the water um, you, you just they delivered they stepped up and these are we spent a ton of time casting these kids I mean we saw so many actors for those roles and as soon as we saw both of them we just knew that that they had it and that they could they could play in the silence as much as they could I mean there's not a ton of dialogue in this that that matters to what's happening it's you know so much of it plays in their reactions yeah um, and those guys are, are really brilliant at that yeah, and so here we are talking about Roger Rabbit, which is a film that is completely created in a soundstage and then in post-production versus a film where right. you're actually dunking your actors and you're taking them out to Sudbury, was it? It's Sudbury, yeah. Yeah, in and getting February and March. It was great to watch in August. Yeah, it's just I'm, it was absolutely wonderful to watch people in the snow. Yes, in the in the middle of this heat wave. Oh, it is. It's a completely different thing, and I mean that was one of the things that we needed, and we knew that we had to be in a place that was extreme to pull this off, and uh, we got that and then some it's, it's it's definitely not the same as shooting on a soundstage I'll tell you that yeah. but it's an amazing experience everything you think that you can plan for gets thrown out the window as soon as you step outside sure so, so do you have a desire now to work with more controllable elements and things you can uh, I mean it, it's funny because I as soon as we wrapped this I thought okay next time I shoot we'll be on a soundstage in some place very like essentially tropical like I need to be somewhere <laughs> right. warm and controlled and everything character been, drama in Bali yeah exactly a couple right? of guys playing chess totally but everything I've been working on since then I, you know I look at it and I go okay I learned absolutely nothing in terms of, <laughs> of like how to make this easier on myself but I mean that's that's the challenge and that's the fun of it all is just sort of getting to not being a slave to you don't get into filmmaking because it's going to be easy. Like it's not you're not looking for the cushiest version of how to make a movie. Or I mean, maybe some people are, but yeah, uh, maybe I'll get there eventually. But right now, that's that's apparently not where I am. I like the adventure of it. Okay, would you work with something like this, a Roger Rabbit scale project? I mean, can yeah. you see yourself taking something else? Yeah, with something like this, some, especially something that inventive and that. Um, ballsy for lack of a better word like I I just I think that it would be a lot of fun to go you know just really swing for the fences with something like that and especially with world building to that degree I think is is really magical that's something that one of my favorite things about films is just sort of looking at it's it's strangely recognizable this world in Roger Rabbit I mean it's it's a 
you watch a cartoon and it's a completely different thing, but then you watch this and you're like, oh, I, I know that world. I know these, these people, even if they're exaggerations that are in this world. But to me, that's the fun is sort of looking at a skewed version of reality. Right. And what's, what struck me about Roger Rabbit this time around, thinking it through, is like, you know so much of it is recognizable even though it's new. Right. As opposed to something like Cool World where, you know, three years later the push was for another one of those only right. for really, really for grown-ups. Yeah. And Bakshi just botched it. Like, it just yeah. doesn't feel convincing and it's it's clearly been hacked up in post-production but so much of it just feels ersatz and unearned. Right. There, there's something about Roger Rabbit's Toontown and, and even Los Angeles where the world is, yeah, it's world building, but yeah. it's subtle world building. Right, it's not, absolutely. It never calls attention to itself. It's just been thought through. Yeah, even back to things like oh, we were just talking about the lobster. Like that's that's a that could be the real world in some slightly different version of you know today or years from now or whatever. I mean, I love the idea of imagining or reimagining our reality. Yeah, and uh, that's that's fun. You get to explore sort of different takes on on how things work versus how they should work in the world and um that's that's sort of what it's all about for me yeah that's what genre does so beautifully yeah. just pull stuff into a new um context or perspective just reframing it absolutely yeah so toontown 2016 i mean that's that was my greatest terror is that if they did do a sequel that they would bring it up to date right and try to you know like, try to incorporate new animated mascots like Poochie would be in there somewhere it would yeah. be unnerving and wrong no there's a decent chance that that's exactly what would happen but, <laughs> but that's the I mean anytime you create something I guess it's out there in the world now and anybody can come along and do whatever they want to it yeah but well as we were saying exactly. earlier, people are going to discover Edge of Winter as the movie where Rick Flagg and Spider-Man go running mm-hmm. into the forests absolutely yeah. but I think we can encourage that now the trick is to cast the other lead in a superhero franchise put totally. him somewhere Totally. We'll take Percy. He can play R2-D2 in the next... Uh, now he's he's hit a growth spurt. I saw him the other day, and he's like, he's just such a great actor. Well, he can be the next 3PO, then. Perfect. Great. There you go. <laughs> My thanks to Rob Connolly, whose new film Edge of Winter is playing in the U.S. right now and opens in Canada from Level Film this Friday, August 19th. It'll also be available on iTunes. Check it out. You can find Who Framed Roger Rabbit on DVD and Blu-ray from Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment, where it continues to be just slightly undervalued. It's also available for sale and rental on iTunes and Google Play. And if you haven't seen it in a while, what are you waiting for? It totally holds up. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. This week's call sign is shave and a haircut. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you just chewed on my